Hello beautiful and welcome to Finding Fertility. I'm your host Monica Cox from FindingFertility.co and I created this podcast to help get you to start thinking outside of the box and realize that your infertility might have nothing to do with your lady bits. Rooted in functional medicine and personal experience, Finding Fertility is all about looking at the whole body and finding the root cause of your infertility. Finding Fertility does not diagnose, prescribe, or treat any issues of infertility. But what we do is take a holistic approach and improve your diet and your lifestyle to get you steps closer to creating your dream family. Just by being here with me, listening to this podcast, you're already going down the right path to making your dreams come true. Let's do this together. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Fertility. I'm your host, Monica Cox, and I'm super excited for you to be here becoming the conscious mama you were born to be. I'm really excited for today's guest. It's Laura High, and she's live in New York. So welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Yeah. So this is going to be a little bit different uh, because it's we're not going to talk about fertility health or becoming a conscious mama. We're going to talk about you and your journey. So introduce yourself. Well, what is up, everybody? My name is Laura High, and I am a sperm donor conceived individual. I'm also a stand up comedian, and I do a lot of advocacy for donor conceived people's rights uh, using uh, my stand up comedy humor. But actually, you know what? What I'm here to talk about is absolutely about fertility health. Um, that's a huge part of it is about your own safety and your own health when you go to the infertility industry. So it's totally connected. It's just probably looking at it from a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you are donor conceived. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit of background of how you were told, how you found out and your journey sure. to kind of becoming this comedian using your uh, like God given skill to really advocate for the community? Absolutely. Um. So I, I, I will say I was told when I was 14 years old and I am, I'm 34. I'm, I'm about to turn 35, which I still can't believe. But, um, I, the fact that I was conceived, I was born in 1988 and I was told at 14 is kind of a miracle within itself because people within my age group are typically never told. They typically find out by accident. So the fact that my parents always in, since the beginning were like, no, 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 we're going to tell her. They told my pediatrician, like as soon as we, we we started working that with that pediatrician, that was an ongoing conversation, was exceptionally progressive of my parents. And I'm so, so unbelievably lucky. Now, in the context of what we have learned now today in terms of late discovery, basically donor-conceived individuals consider finding out that they're donor-conceived, I believe like anything past the age of like three, a late discovery. So I am considered a late discovery, but I hold no ill will towards it because my parents were like so swimming up the stream with that one. Um, and I'm like, way to go mom and dad. Um, but I was told when I was 14 years old and it was such a, and my pediatrician specifically told my parents, my father needs to be the one to tell me yeah. because she, and I mean, my pediatrician, her name was Dr. Mary and Dr. Mary, I, she had such like, she was so ahead of her time. And she was like, the reason her dad needs to be the one to tell her is Laura's going to be immediately worried 
that her dad's not going to love her as much, or he's going to be self-conscious. There's going to be like a worry and it's going to be innately in there. If he's the one to tell her, then that immediately calms it down. Yeah. And she's like, it has to be him. And I'm like, that was a brilliant call on her part. And at that point there was like, no, I mean, there still is no studies, but like there was nothing like she just innately knew and I, I just, I give her so many points for that. And I, and I'm so, so unbelievably blessed to have had such an amazing pediatrician, um, such as Dr. Mary, who really just immediately stood up for my rights in that way. Um, so I was in the car with my father and my dad, and that's where I always say, that's where all dads have important conversations is in the car. Cause they don't have to look at you <laughs> and they can control how long, how short the conversation is. And he was just, it was ultimate dadding. And my father again, I'm 14, just suddenly said, Hey, Laura, do you know how babies are made? And there's so much to unpack there. Now, my reaction was, um, because I was such a smart ass at smart ass at that age. And like my stand up comic sense was already brewing. And I responded like, yeah, dad, I've seen Skinamax. Um, but I also just find it hilarious that I'm like, dad, the fact that you're my father and you needed to ask if I knew how babies were made, like dad, what check in man check, yeah. come on what are you doing there you were there during the conversation when like supposedly both you and mom were telling me how this works but apparently you were just out and dadding in your own head and like I don't know staring at the stealing or something thinking about yard work like dad uh so I I do continually make fun of him for that moment like <laughs> I knew at 14 um and um so then he he told me how how you know the fact that um you know and we went through the we we went through and and it it really answered a lot of questions because I always I obviously didn't know I was donor conceived but I knew something was off like it was one of those things where I was like was I switched at birth was I but it it, it didn't line up because I was like I saw my mom pregnant and I looked just like my mom I I literally look like a carbon copy of my mom we always joke that like there really wasn't a sperm donor they yeah. just copied and pasted her <laughs> um but it really but that was how I was told mm -hmm. and it kind of just sat and simmered there for a really long time and I literally just brought it up at parties because I thought this was like a cool interesting fact at me at the age of 19 because I was 19 and, and such a little weirdo um and it just sort of sat there but it was always this bubbling curiosity that I had yeah. nowhere to take it like what do you, I had nothing um and I remember at 19 I was sitting in college with like some friends and they were like are you like worried about health stuff and I'm like well what do you mean they're like well what if you're donor had cancer or has Alzheimer's or has a heart disease like you don't know if he didn't and those are kind of important things for you to know and suddenly I was like oh shit I had never thought about that oh my god that's kind of important and then it was like I have an anxiety disorder so like I hyper fixate on shit and so then I was just like oh my god oh my god oh my god what do I do and I did know my parents' infertility doctor. So I kind of just decided to like, you know what? Fuck it. We're just going to call him. We're just going to call him. That's what we're going to do at 19 years old. This is going to work out great. And so I called him. And I will never forget this conversation. For the rest of my life, it is burned in my brain. And I, because my memory specifically is I remember story. I remember visually, um, or, or, like, 
any like, like I have an incredible memory for like movies and plays. Yeah. Um, like or or anything that was like I and I remember everything like a movie very very well. So uh, these are things that I just I absorb and I can always continually see. Um, and I will never forget this conversation. It was I picked up the phone and I was like, oh, and the secretary was like, "Hi, who's this?" And I'm like, "Oh shit, I didn't think about this." And I was like, "Hi." I, my name is Laura. I'm a, I'm a patient. Can I talk to him? And she's like, okay, well, uh, what, what was your full name? We just need to look up your record. And I'm like, and I just, and I'm going to make up my mother's name for them for a second. But I was like, just tell him that I'm, tell him that I'm Macy High's daughter. Tell him I'm Macy High's daughter. He'll know who it is. And I was kind of banking on the fact that he remembered my mom's name because my mother was his very first patient. Oh, okay. Very, very first patient. And my parents were the very first patients at his clinic. So I was kind of banking on that. And I want to say it was two minutes. I mean, it was two minutes until he picked up the phone. And I remember it it was just he went, hi. And there was a tone to his voice that I was like, okay. And then I remember, I remember saying hello I'm Macy's daughter I'm Laura do you know who I am and I will never forget the tone of his voice when he went yeah I know who you are and it was just suddenly all the air went out of the room I was just suddenly like I didn't know what was happening I didn't know the circumstance like I didn't have the information that I have now but suddenly but it was like I knew something was going on and it was just like oh shit what is happening um and I told him I was like hi I'm so I'm interested in learning who my donor is or what my medical history is or or both is possible so I'm calling to see if I can find out like medical history because I'm concerned like if my donor has had like cancer Parkinson's like anything like that I'd love to be able to know now and he I remember he said something um he said something on the lines of so your donor was anonymous so no matter what, I can't give you that name, but your donor came from a bank that was filled with doctors and med students. Um, and so there's no way I know who the donor is anyway, but even if I did know who it was, all of your papers, that entire Clint bank has been, was burnt to the ground along with all of your papers anyway. But I can guarantee you he was perfect, perfectly fine, perfectly healthy. There was nothing to worry about. <laughs> and dope. I remember, like, at 19, even I knew, I was like, this is bullshit. Like, <laughs> what? Like, this is, like, dude, I'm a kid, but I fucking know this is dumb. And I was just like, okay, thank you, sir. This was so helpful. Thanks. And that was it. And I haven't, I actually would love to call him again and be like, yo, dude, I have notes. Um, <laughs> I would, I'd love to call him again. And I, 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 I feel like there, there needs to be an appointment. There, there should be a, a follow-up to be like, all right, dude, I've done my research now. Let's go through this. Like, I know you're not going to give me anything, but I just want you to know that like, I know you lied. Like, yeah. I'm very aware of this now, but like, all right. Um, but yeah, so um, that happened at 19 and then like nothing, 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 nothing happened until I took my ancestry test at like age 26. Mm -hmm. 
And what we were told was the, what we, my parents were told, so my parents at that time were not allowed to pick the donor because you weren't allowed to pick your donor for a really, really long time. And what they did was they were like, we just match donors up to the dads as best we can. And my dad is Irish, Scottish, and Catholic. And the Catholic part is important. I don't know why it was, but it was because what they said was the most important thing that we match up first before anything else was religion. And I'm like, I understand like our knowledge of genetics is still very like, it's still very um, new, but really, really religion. You guys did it. That's crazy. What? Like guys, but my we have found out because of ancestry my donor is a hundred percent ashkenazi jewish <laughs> i was so, gonna say you don't look i mean i guess you look like your mom but if i, I had I, to guess i would put you more in the jewish category than the catholic category <laughs> uh my mom also took an ancestry test with me and she doesn't have a lick of ashkenazi in her so i basically look like <laughs> i i look like the jewish version of my mother is what it is um, and people always look at us going like, so her dad's Jewish. Like they always uh, uh, assume that. Um, and you can look at my mom and know she is not Jewish. Yeah. Um, but they all immediately, like when I used to work in Times Square, I had uh, I had uh, members of the Hasidic Jewish uh, popul- community come up to me and just start speaking Yiddish to me. And I would go like, I'm so sorry, I'm not Jewish. And this was before I knew I was. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, I'm not Jewish. And they would look at me and be like, okay. <laughs> They're like, and I remember they, there was a concern on their face. Like, are you, are you okay? Are you lost? Like, sweetheart, do you, do you, do you, are we, Yeah. Do, do you need help? Like, I remember there was multiple conversations where they were just like, no, 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 no. You're one of us. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, how did you, did someone take you? Like, what's going on? Um, and that was and I and because I didn't know at that point and I had to like like, no no no, I promise I'm not I'm I really am not and they were just like okay okay um so they were calling it out years before I knew that is so crazy um and I mean this is like way woo right but I um there's a girl on TikTok Tally you can go look her up and I would uh, reckon that she would have something to say about that of why they were picking religion over anything else and um how do I say this (laughs) um religious uh ties can absolutely be passed down through your genetics it's insane so it's weird that they even like chose that as a thing to us but I bet you there was a reason behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty crazy, crazy story because yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like obvious and, and I feel like there's always a sense, right? Like you sense that something was different in you from your mom and dad. These Jewish people will come up to you and be like, we know, we know you're part of our lineage girl. (laughs) Oh, it was. I think when I was, when I was 13 years old was when it started, people started asking. Yeah. And they were like, she's Jewish, right? And I'd be like, no, I'm in Catholic school. Um, I'm an al- I was an altar server. So uh, yeah, yeah, it was. And it, it, it actually, unfortunately, put me in a very dangerous position a few times because I would unknowingly put myself in dangerous positions. Um, there were multiple times where I was um, 
in spaces or uh, like people would say people would say anti-semitic things to me mm-hmm. and i didn't understand what was going on yeah i didn't understand um and that was and i look back and go like i was very lucky like there were a few a few times um that it was just like oh shit that was what was happening and mm-hmm. I just didn't, I was like, what, what did that comment mean? Like, what, what, what does that mean? Um, and there were times where I would, and there were times where I had to be in places that were, I'm going to say, not Jewish friendly. Mm-hmm. And I would have handled those situations so much more differently if I had known. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have handled them much differently. And that is, and that looking back at it, it was just like, oh shit, no, I was, I was absolutely putting myself in a very dangerous position and I had no idea that I was. Mm, Um, And that was something I really wish I knew at that point because it was like, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, I got, I was very lucky that I, that nothing ever became violent, but there were absolutely continuous comments. Yeah. That's so interesting. I didn't think this conversation would go down that route, but thank you for sharing. Um, Okay, so you have this knowledge at 26 now that you are, in fact, half Jewish. Yes. (laughs) And uh, life changes, obviously, right? You get that information. So what kind of path, what kind of road did you start walking down? Um, Nothing happened for another few years. At the age of 30, I connected with one of my donor's first cousins. And I was able to figure out who my donor was. And it was like, oh, shit. And I found out my donor is actually a Orthodox rabbi. And loyal. Yes. He's also an OBGYN. But yes. So he is very devout. Um, And so it's like, whoa, all right. And then... I found out that, you know, he has two kids and I was like, oh my God, I have a, I have a brother and a sister. Holy, oh my God. And I was able to find a picture of my sister and go like, we, we look alike. Like mm-hmm. there's, you could absolutely sell the fact that we're, we're sisters. And that was very, and that was hard because I wanted nothing more than to have siblings as a child. Like I begged my parents for siblings. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I was like, I actually always had a brother and a sister was like, wow. And then another year went by and I got a message from uh, another girl who said, hi, I think we're half siblings. And turns out that, and this was the piece that, this is where everything changed, where we were able to figure out that my donor was donating for at least six years. Jesus. Because given the way that my donation happened, we assumed that I was like a one-time deal. I, we did not think that I was part of a major pod and my donor was donating for six years in the eighties as a med student. And that was the fact that I was told by people who have been much more active um, within this advocacy longer than I have, were like, you need to be ready because you could have easily 50 siblings. And that, that was when everything changed for me. That was the moment of, Oh, my God, I need to talk about this. This needs to get out there immediately. What is going on? I, I what? I might have 50? 
And then, and so I connected with that sister and then her full sister is also my half sister. And then I found out I had another half sister. And since then we've found a half brother. Um, and it's been, and that was, that was the point of anger for me. That was when I started getting angry. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started doing the research and I started learning about how unbelievably unbelievably and comically unregulated the infertility industry is yeah especially in regards to donor conception mm -hmm. and i was just shocked because i was like this there's no way this is this is cartoonish yeah it is it's cartoonishly unregulated the fact that and this is always where i start with people the fact that it is not federally illegal for a doctor to switch out the chosen donor sperm or eggs with their own that act is only illegal in 11 states and it and that was a recent development yeah that's how bad it is Mm -hmm. that's where we're starting that to me is ground level so if that is if that's not federally illegal let your imagination soar of what else is not regulated and that's always kind of how I start explaining it to people is like if because like like let's just you know let's call it for what it is that's sexual assault yeah. it is legalized sexual assault mm -hmm. and so when we talk about the safety and health of recipient parents going in for fertility treatments that's always the first thing that I talk about is that that isn't illegal and it isn't even and if you go in with um your partner you go in with like your husband it's not federally illegal for them to switch out your husband's sperm for his own which happens a lot with IVF I I'm laughing because I have no other emotion no that totally I get that me when you hear yeah. shit like that right yeah. like Oh, because it's comical. It's, it's just, cartoonish. Um, so I did all of my treatment in the UK. And um, the clinic, the second clinic that we were with, I mean, we had like IDs and like, you know, mm -hmm. when you're going in or they're scanning you and all that. So, I mean, I did feel safe in my clinic that they were doing the best that they could. Yeah. But it does cross your mind several times yes. what's happening, mistakes purposely yeah. um swaps you know like and I have an IVF baby and I was so grateful when it came out that it was a spit of my husband so I knew that it was yeah. like but it does cross your mind and yeah. it shouldn't it shouldn't I mean absolutely the fact that they you know the barcodes I mean all clinics should be working off of the barcode system absolutely I mean that that should be standard practice and I mean a lot of them do but again it, it takes it takes one Yahoo in the cryobank or the clinic to just screw screw everything up. Yeah. And that's what I tell people is that I don't think that every single person in the infertility industry is this maniacal evil individual. I, I don't think that. But all it takes is that one person in the clinic to yeah. ruin, to to drastically maliciously hurt a hundred people. Yeah. Um with your yeah, it, with your research because um obviously i found you on tiktok and found your information like just mind-blowing yeah these huge pods that you've been working on yeah um 
do you think this is an 80s 90s thing or no. do you think it still is going on absolutely it's still going on and i do have evidence for that to to absolutely say one of the um i uh, also uh not not to totally self promote myself but um my my podcast insemination um there is a episode called cryobank whistler um uh um and was that no that's not the title hold on that's not the title um that was my memory totally being a, a butt face to me hold on i'm gonna actually get you guys the actual name of the episode um cryobank whistleblower that makes way more sense so cryo so that episode specifically talks about somebody who worked in the cry in a major cryobank in the united states that don't um that supplies sperm for the United States and internationally. And she basically whistle blew a massive pod. Um, and she was working there in 2014. So this was very recent. Mm. And basically what happened was she caught a serial donor donating at multiple banks, including hers and realized oh my god the pod's already huge we need to stop selling him mm -hmm. and she went to her higher ups and was like we need to stop selling him here's my evidence this is like everything like he's been he's he's we we have to stop selling him and they basically said no we're not doing that we're absolutely not he's our number one seller and there's no regulation and she love her to death and she just went no 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 no, no this is wrong and so she took this information to his higher ups and she was promptly fired. Mm -hmm. But at the time when she found this out, there was already a between the between the bank that he was donating before at and her bank, there was already a confirmed 100 pregnant uh, 100 pregnancies. Jesus. And something to remember, and, and this is always something that I, I really want to like, really want to kind of hit the, hit the nail on the head with a lot of parents is I understand that your bank or your, uh, your, your bank was like, oh, no, no, we have a 25 family limit. Um, we only donate to 25 families. I understand that that's what your bank told you. And I totally get that. But let's think about that for a second. What does 25 families mean? So one, your child at minimum is going to have 25 siblings. That's a lot, but that's a lot. But that's only if one, your child, each family only has one kid. Mm -hmm. Most likely they're not. Most likely mm -hmm. it's going to be two. So very easily, if all those families on average have two, that's already 50 kids. So that's just even playing by their own rules. But how do they, how do they manage that? They don't they put all of the responsibility on the parents to report the pregnancies. Mm -hmm. So hypothetically, they only wait for parents to report the pregnancies. And we have found statistically that 50% of the parents don't report the pregnancies. And why is that, do you think? Um, I think a lot of parents are like, why? Yeah. It's none of their business. Yeah. Um, and so the parents are like, eh, um, there, and here's the thing. It should be the bank's responsibility. Mm. It should be the bank's responsibility to have a tracking system point put in. They do not want to because it will cost too much on their end and it will cost them their second beach house. That is why. Yeah. Um, so 
there is no singular way you are guaranteed your sibling cap that that bank promised you. Mm -hmm. There is no way. And because there is no regulation in terms of a sibling cap, they don't even have to follow it. Um, last year, Colorado instituted the very first sibling cap in um, for any state in the United States, which is now 25 families in Colorado. But that law will not like go into place for another few years anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, 25 families is way too much. That I mean, that that is still way too high. I'll take it. Um, but we we still need to absolutely make it much more reasonable and safe. Yeah. But absolutely, these giant sibling pods are still a very huge reason. Um, and unfortunately, the banks are realizing that the parents are starting to notice and they're taking advantage of it. Are they trying to fix the system? No, they are actively trying to go after it. Um, recently, we've had banks coming up with these um, exclusive donor programs. We've had one uh, cryobank that uh, basically says if you want to have an exclusive donor where this donor will only donate for you and you only, um, that will be $25,000 and you have to buy, it'll be, sorry, $20,000 and you have to buy all 25 vials. Yeah, they, I am thoroughly convinced that the, I'm just going to call it the infertility community or industry, because I don't even believe infertility is a thing. Most women are dealing with fertility issues. There's very few couples that, you know, really need this amazing um, service that is offered, but um, they, they prey on our weaknesses and they are getting smarter and more clever about it. And they're seeing the opportunities and the desperation from families. Yeah. It's they they prey on infertility trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a few there's a few issues with with that. One, I think that societally we need to take infertility trauma way more seriously. Way more. Be, and the lack of empathy that there that exists for infertility trauma still to this day is still disgusting i mean i see it in my comment section all the time where people are like you know fuck infertility trauma like i don't give a shit about you just go deal with it and i'm like yo yo, yo one you just made the problem 10 times worse you just made the problem 10 times worse that is i get very very angry at that kind of behavior um, I mean, I will always put the donor conceived person's um, rights before anything else. Absolutely. But I have a lot of compassion for um, people who are going through infertility. Um, my mom obviously went through infertility and, you know, she talked to me very kindly and sweetly about, you know, her struggles and I could hear the pain in her voice yeah. and I could understand that. And I've talked to people who have gone through infertility for, for so many years and this is a very real trauma and it's a very real pain. And I do not like how brash and coarse we are with people with that. Um, because of that pain, because of that stigma and because of that callousness, that is what drives people to operate in the dark and not talk to their community about this. Mm -hmm. And this should be a communal healing process because when you go to the infertility trauma very quietly and secretly, still very triggered with all of this trauma the infertility industry goes haha and knows how to capitalize on that and you put yourself and unfortunately your child in huge amounts of danger because of that 
And I, it is something that I keep preaching that it's like you, we have to be showing if we want to change the industry, we have to start treating infertility trauma with significantly more empathy. That is a huge piece of this. Huge yeah. piece of it. I mean, more than half of my clients now, when we start, it's actually um, helping them heal through the IVF trauma that they've been through. Yeah. Because when you are dealing with um, either woman or, you know, male fertility issues, it's the woman who has to go through the treatments, right? So let's say the woman is um, healthy enough, but we need a, a... a sperm donor it's still the woman that has to go through all of that treatment Mm -hmm. and what like just like you were saying we don't talk about it enough and the clinics do not give the support that this is actually really traumatic on your body physically mentally and emotionally absolutely it is and there's no support and for me on a health and wellness point of view too is that a lot of these women let's say um it's either their issue or there's a combination of issue, their bodies aren't healthy enough to go through the treatment. So the treatment actually makes them worse off than they were before because they weren't, they didn't have the knowledge to be like, hey, whether I choose to use this treatment or not, I need to get my body to a certain state to even handle walking around like my ovaries are the size of fucking grapefruits because that's basically what IVF does to you. Yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's huge. It is uh, going through IVF is a it's an incredibly invasive procedure. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly invasive. And um, and it's and it's why I, I have I mean, my mom did not go through uh, IVF, but um, I, sorry, I was not conceived through IVF, but my mom went through three years of hormone therapy and two surgeries and. I mean, and this was in the eighties. So mm. this was like eighties fertility. Right. Drugs. And <laughs> I, and I feel like she talks about the pain and it's yeah. just like physically the pain that she went through. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. yeah. And, um, I do joke. Cause I'm like, you know, I know my parents spent so much money, um, to have me. And I mm-hmm. joke that it's like, I'm slowly making all of that money back through joking about <laughs> the whole process and my stand up. Um, so I'm like, you're welcome mom and dad. I love you both. <laughs> Um, and they're just like, we love that you're using this as your right. comedy material, Laura. This is this is great. This is what we really <laughs> hoped for. Uh, thank you so much. Um, and it's just an, it's an ongoing joke between my parents and I. But um, yeah, no, it's it's a tremendous amount, and I do. It's always something that I I constantly try and encourage members of my community especially that we're not going to make the change we want without empathy for infertility trauma and Mm -hmm. that isn't and now again and I say this my allegiance and alliance will always be to donor conceived people it will always be that way but to me in my opinion and in my perspective, we will protect our community better if we have empathy for infertility trauma. And we are going to end the episode here today. Join us next time as we continue diving into such an important topic to talk about 
um, within side the quote unquote infertility community and industry. Thank you once again for tuning in to the Finding Fertility podcast. If you're loving this podcast, please leave us a rating and review and let us know how this podcast is supporting you to get steps closer to creating your dream family. I hope you have a beautiful weekend and we will see you next Friday for another episode of the Finding Fertility podcast.